Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Wednesday, November 3. Tom Tilly with you, joined by Katrina Blouse. Now, Katrina Blouse, have you um, filled out the, the briefing survey yet? I was really scared you were going to ask me that. You know what? I haven't, but I think I've still got time, haven't I? Well, you work on the briefing. You don't really have to yeah, fill out the yeah. survey. We know what you think of the show. You, you come in every day after recording and say, look got to sort this out, we've got to sort that out, that bit was boring. Tom, come Tom, on. Your energy needs some work, yeah. <laughs> no, um, we won't fill out the survey, but we'd love you to, um, if you're a regular listener to the briefing, or maybe this is the first time you've ever heard it, and you sort of like what you hear, but maybe you sort of don't, you think, well, you could do this and it'd be way better, I'll come back and listen tomorrow. We'd love yeah. to hear from you. Go into our Instagram bio, there's a link there to a very quick little survey, and it's all about helping us improve the briefing. Absolutely. We'd love to hear your feedback. In this episode, <laughs> this is a bit of a cracker, <laughs> was it just a bad boyfriend? That's the question a lot of people have been asking, I think. This is all about the corruption inquiry into the former New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian, which has finished its two weeks of incredibly dramatic hearings. Yeah, a number of former and current parliamentary colleagues and departmental staffers told the inquiry that they thought Gladys Berejiklian should have declared her relationship with disgraced former MP Dara Maguire as a potential conflict of interest. And there were also some very interesting phone recordings of her conversations with her former boyfriend. I just spoke to Dom and I said, just put the 140 in the budget. He goes, no worries. He just does what I ask him to. It's all fine. All right. And I'll throw money at Wagga. You just have to do what's right from your end. Otherwise, you'll kill me. Yes, but I can overall them. Go and give them a stadium. Give them a I'll do that. A stadium. I'll do that too. I'll do that too. Despite that evidence and a number of other testimonies in the inquiry over the last two weeks, when it was Gladys Berejiklian's chance to step into the stand, she did not admit any wrongdoing whatsoever. I wouldn't be able to tell you that I can't confirm. I don't have any uh, a recollection of that. I can't uh, recall exactly the nature of the conversation. Well, I knew there was a big cloud, but I didn't know to the extent of what was transpiring. I didn't feel I had anything or knew anything. I knew nothing. Wow. So just how much did she know and just how much weight will those denials hold with the public? That's our topic in today's briefing. It's all about the Corruption Commission. First, here are today's headlines. Leaders of more than 100 countries, home to about 85% of the world's forests, have pledged to end deforestation by 2030. We have to stop the devastating loss of our forests. These great teeming ecosystems, trillion pillared uh, cathedrals of nature. That's the one and only Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, announcing the deal with countries including Brazil, China, Russia and the United States at the COP26 Glasgow summit. Yeah, so this deal is particularly important because those forests are seen to be uh, crucial to absorbing carbon dioxide and slowing the rise in global warming. And Australia has committed to a new global climate change support program for low-lying island countries. Working with everyone to adapt to climate change and the challenges in particularly that our Pacific family face is something that is very much, in very practical ways, a part of Australia's DNA. 
That's the PM, Scott Morrison, announcing the deal alongside India's PM, Narendra Modi, in Glasgow. Australia will join India and the UK in funding the Infrastructure for Resilient Island States facility, called IRIS for short, a joint initiative that's going to fund roads, bridges, walls and wharves in nations like Fiji, Jamaica and South American island nations. Yeah, basically helping them adapt to rising sea levels. It follows Scott Morrison's announcement yesterday that Australia would boost its climate change funding to help Pacific and Southeast Asian neighbours with the effects of climate change by $500 million, which tanks the total support for that program to $2 billion by 2025. But Pacific Island leaders aren't that impressed. Uh, Fiji's PM calling Australia's net zero commitment a start. Meanwhile, the president of Palau, which is a group of 500 islands in Micronesia, has given a really powerful and fiery speech at the summit, telling world leaders his people are drowning. Our resources are disappearing before our eyes and our future is being robbed from us. Frankly speaking... There is no dignity to a slow and painful death. You might as well bomb our islands instead of making us suffer only to witness our slow and fateful demise. Yeah, I've wow. got to say, that got me, Tom. That mm. got me. Uh, so he's saying that large emitters with insatiable appetites are threatening his nation's survival. And he says this is a real moment in time where we need action. Mm, yeah, I guess the challenge is these big developing countries. So you've got the the developed countries aiming for net zero by 2050, but you've got India talking about net zero by 2070, Mm. China at 2060. So there's still this tussle between, I guess, how much of the the hard work is done by the countries that have enjoyed the spoils of coal-fired power like ours and those developing countries that are still yet to reap those benefits and lift up so many of their people out of poverty through that cheap but carbon-intensive energy production. At least 25 people have been killed, more than 50 injured in an attack on a military hospital in the Afghan capital, Kabul. Witnesses said at least two explosions were heard before gunmen stormed the 400-bed hospital. The Taliban says the attackers were affiliated with the Islamic State and were killed within 15 minutes of storming the building. So this follows a string of bombings by Islamic State or which have been attributed to Islamic State, which has emerged as the biggest threat to Taliban control of Afghanistan. Yeah, and it's been such a mess, this withdrawal from Afghanistan. But when you go back to the original mission, it was about stabilising the country so these dangerous militant groups Mm. um, couldn't rise up and commit big acts of terror And as soon as the Western forces are out, um, you know, the Taliban say they've taken control, but we're seeing a rise in these attacks from these other militant groups. And will Elon Musk put his money where his mouth is? Or was he just being a (laughs) (laughs) smartass? Yeah, so this is about world hunger. The director of the UN's World Food Program, David Beasley, has been calling on billionaires to do more to help end world hunger. This is when the billionaires need to step up now on a one-time basis, $6 billion to help 42 million people that are literally going to die if we don't reset. It's not complicated. It is complicated, actually. I don't think it's as simple as chucking money at the problem, although that does help. On Twitter, Elon Musk wrote that he would give $6 billion if they could end world hunger and open source their accounting. He was responding to a post that had an article with the headline, 2% of Elon Musk's wealth could end world hunger, which I would imagine would be frustrating for someone like him to read. Well, David Beasley wrote back to Elon Musk's tweet saying, 
look, the headline was misleading. Six billion wouldn't end world hunger, but it will prevent geopolitical instability, mass migration, and save 42 million people on the brink of starvation. So... I if guess, it's spent yeah. properly, if it's funneled into the right channels well, with lasting results, yeah. Yeah, I guess the, the question <laughs> really is, will Elon Musk chuck in some money or was he just calling out that hyperbolic headline? You know, he's now the richest man in the world. He's, yeah. he's, he's worth around $400 billion. He's got enough money to spend on going to Mars. So was he just sort of calling out this language or does he want to get involved? I guess he already does spend a lot on charity. He Mm. just doesn't um, do it publicly. He does it anonymously. And also, should we, the public or other organisations, be telling billionaires how to spend their money when they've made it? Yes, we should. (laughs) (laughs) Make the world a better place, please. I love that you've got such a big, warm heart, Tom Tilly. (laughs) (laughs) All right, in a moment, going deep on the New South Wales ICAC hearing. It was one of the fastest political falls from grace in recent history. Just five weeks ago, Gladys Berejiklian was the Premier of New South Wales. She was about to lead that state into the next phase of the pandemic, vaccinating, opening up and even living with COVID. And then boom, it was over. She stood down hours after ICAC, the Independent Commission Against Corruption, announced it was investigating her. There were four key questions it was looking into. The first two examined whether she breached public trust by not disclosing a private relationship that might have impacted her public decision-making. It was about two key grants in her former boyfriend, Daryl Maguire's electorate. And the second two points of the investigation were about whether she should have reported concerns about his conduct and whether she allowed or encouraged corrupt conduct by Darren Maguire. So the question we're asking today is, it's already cost her her job. Will it cost her her legacy? Yoni Bashan is the New South Wales political correspondent for The Australian, and he has sat through the 11-day ICAC hearing into the former Premier's dealings with her one-time secret boyfriend. He joins us now on The Briefing. So, Yoni, I'm in Queensland, and I guess for people in other states from the outside looking in, we're sort of looking at this situation going, isn't it a personal question for Gladys Berejiklian of who she dates and who she doesn't date? And and why is this such a big deal? Yeah, and it's a fair question as well. Um, look, I would say that that's where the matter starts. It's an investigation into, and the heart of the matter really is, into whether or not she needed to declare that very personal and private relationship. It's a fair question. But what that question has exposed is what some people might describe as rampant dysfunction within her government. And by that, I mean the potential misuse of public funds, particularly to further projects that were dear to the heart of this person whom Gladys Berejiklian was in a relationship with. And that's the former member for Wagga Wagga, Daryl Maguire. So Yoni, take us back. Where did this all begin? And when is it alleged that the former Premier should have started asking some questions? I mean, if we really want to go back to the start, it begins in around 2012 when this person, this former member for Wagga Wagga, Daryl Maguire, starts making representations to the then sports minister, this is back in 2012, to start having a look at providing funding to an organisation named the Australian Clay Target Association. It's 
you know, a not so obscure organization. It's involved in clay target shooting. It's based in the Wagga Wagga electorate. And he's seeking funding for them. That's that's probably the starting point. Where it gets complicated is that around about 2015, he hasn't been able to secure the funding for that organization, but he has started something of a relationship with the then treasurer, Gladys Berejiklian. And Gladys Berejiklian is a rising star in the Barry O'Farrell and the Mike Baird governments. And he started this relationship with her. And on his description of it, it starts out fairly fairly slow. They've been friends for a very long time, but it starts to develop and it becomes close and personal. And it's probably at about that point, or perhaps shortly thereafter, that Gladys Berejiklian, when she starts attending meetings such as cabinet meetings or expenditure review committee meetings, and we know from these hearings that Gladys Berejiklian was one of the chief architects or the chief advancers of some of the projects that Daryl Maguire was seeking funding for. So it's probably at that point that she needed to say to someone in those meetings, hey, I'm actually in a relationship with this person. We're going to be talking about funding for his electorate. And perhaps I need to recuse myself from this meeting. And I would just add, don't take my word for it on that. Uh, We've had a conga line, if I can put it that way, of former politicians. So for example, Mike Baird, the former Premier of New South Wales, we've had very senior public servants speaking at the ICAC over the past two weeks. And they've been asked very bluntly, should she have declared this relationship? Or if she had, would you as a public servant have thought about this any differently? And all of them have said, without exception, all of them have said yes. Mm. The only person who has not said yes, the only person who does not think anything should have been done differently is Gladys Berejiklian herself. So her argument is that other local members also had access to her and lobbied for funding in their own electorates. And in a sense, this lobbying from Dara Maguire was similar to those other MPs that he didn't essentially get special access or special power over her. How much weight did that argument hold? It depends how persuaded you are by her argument. So she certainly says that he was never treated any differently to any other MP. And certainly in my time in in reporting on New South Wales politics, I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that there are other members of parliament who call the premier, who call certain ministers, and they say, listen, I need funding for my electorate. This is very, very important. We know that happens all the time. Where I think it falls a little flat, we know from their phone calls that she was saying things to him like, I can't fix all of your problems, which certainly implies that he asked for things to be fixed and that she certainly goes out of her way to do so. We know in one case, he was complaining to her very bitterly about some funding that his electorate had missed out on in an upcoming state budget during 2018 and 2019. And the first thing Gladys Berejiklian said was, don't worry, I'll fix it. Not in those exact words, but it was something to the effect of, I'll fix it, leave it with And she calls him back Mm. within two hours and she says, I've spoken to the New South Wales Treasurer, Dominic Perrottet, that's now the Premier of New South Wales, and I've managed to secure you $170 million in funding and I've done so, in her words, in five minutes. Now, whether that funding was actually secured or not is a different matter. It's not really the point, though. The point is, is that the Premier was someone, and also during her time as Treasurer, she was someone who undertook extraordinary contortions in order to satisfy the needs of this person who she happened to be in a relationship with. And I would further add to that that, yes, while MPs would have called Gladys and would have asked her for funding and asked for assistance, they weren't privy to the same relationship with her that Daryl Maguire was. So, no, I don't think mm. it's a, an argument that holds water. So did Daryl Maguire directly benefit from the approval of those grants to the Conservatorium of Music and also the Clay Target Association? How did that all play out? 
if you're an MP and you're able to lobby for public funding for projects in your electorate, that means that it's it's money that's allocated to you and not perhaps to another project that may be equally deserving and may be in a part of the state that very much needs it, but may not necessarily align with the political values of the moment of the government. So I don't particularly find it persuasive when Gladys Berejiklian tells the ICAC that she didn't gain any benefit, private or otherwise, out of allocating funding to, say, a hospital in Wagga Wagga. And I don't believe the same holds true for Daryl. I think if you're able to secure funding, that can confer a huge amount of status on you as someone with great power within government, but also you can become highly regarded by members of your electorate as constituents of your electorate as someone who can get things done. But that's sort and of that's how democracy important. works, that you, you get what you're talking about is winning political capital there by impressing your constituents that you got funding for your electorate. It's, it's very different from, say, taking money out and spending it on personal things like property or other personal benefits. That's very true. I guess what I would argue is, is that that is a misuse of funding. He may not have acquired a personal benefit in terms of you know, improving financial. his own financial status, but I think in terms of improving his political capital, I don't think that accounts for nothing, nor do I think yeah. it should. So all of that relates to the first two points of this investigation. Um, the last two are about whether or not Gladys Berejiklian should have reported any suspicious conduct by Maguire to ICAC and whether she allowed or encouraged corrupt conduct by Maguire. So what evidence was presented that demonstrated she knew about suspicious conduct and should have reported it? Could she have been aware or suspicious of his conduct? Well, I think we know the answer to that is, at least from the ICAC's perspective, is yes. At some point, she became aware that he had lied to her about never accepting a dollar and never doing a deal. They had a conversation in early July of 2018 in which he told her he was being summoned to appear at an ICAC inquiry to answer questions. And the first thing Gladys Berejiklian says is, is there anything we need to worry about here? He says, absolutely not. I've never done a deal. I've never accepted a dollar. Well, eight days later, he appears at the ICAC and he answers the question and she and the rest of the world finds out that is not in fact true. He was in fact soliciting commissions from property developers. He was exposed at the ICAC and Gladys Berejiklian was forced to basically sack him. Members of parliament do not take commissions from property developers. You're not allowed to do it. And Gladys Berejiklian has been a politician for a very long time. In my opinion, she's one of the shrewdest politicians in Australia. And for her to be told that and for her to do nothing about it is very troubling. It's very unusual. And one queries why she didn't do anything about it. So she knew about this $1.5 million commission. She told the ICAC that she didn't believe it. Attempted commission, by the way. It never never happened for Daryl. Correct. Correct. An attempted commission. It, it fell through like many of his other dealings. He wasn't very good at actually procuring the money he sought. She knew about that attempted commission. She knew that he was before the ICAC answering questions about his other soliciting of commissions from property developers in relation to Canterbury City Council. She did nothing. The question is whether she suspected the corruption. It's going to be a question that ICAC is going to seek to answer, but you could certainly see by the responses of Commissioner Ruth McColl on Monday that she wasn't buying it. I suspect that members of the public are not going to look as kindly upon Gladys Berejiklian as they would have, say, three months ago when she had become simply unassailable due to her stratospheric levels of popularity. She was arguably one of the most popular politicians in Australia, um, certainly on the Eastern Seaboard. But I think her, if I can just focus on her performance in the witness box over the past two days, would certainly give rise to unease among the people who would regard themselves as her supporters. She appears to have openly lied about two very important points. 
One of them is that she was asked in New South Wales Parliament a year ago whether she had ever given a key to Dell Maguire during their relationship. And her words to the Parliament at the time was that that was factually and practically inaccurate. Well, we know that that's not true because both Daryl Maguire and Gladys Berejiklian were asked during their appearances at ICAC whether he was given a key and both of them confirmed it was yes. So that's a very uncomfortable point that needs to be addressed in the first instance. The second point is that one of the first people she told about this relationship was her chief of staff, Sarah Cruikshank. And that conversation occurred on the same day that Daryl Maguire appeared at the separate ICAC inquiry, looking at Canterbury City Council and its public officials' dealings with property developers. And she has a conversation with Sarah Cruikshank in which she says to her, I've been in a close and personal relationship with Daryl Maguire, but it's a historical relationship and it ended before I became Premier. Gladys becoming Premier on 2017, this conversation happening in 2018. So Sarah Cruikshank's evidence to the ICAC is that there was no relationship to speak of at that point. It was historical and it had been dealt with. And we know as well that that's not true. We know that Gladys Berejiklian continued her relationship with Daryl Maguire right up until 2020, we're told. It's a little bit fluid as to when the relationship precisely ended, but it's somewhere in the vicinity of 2020. So when this was put to Gladys at ICAC, her response was wholly unsatisfactory. She fell on that classic line, which just wouldn't resonate with a single person out there. It was, I can't recall, or I have no yeah. recollection, or people have different recollections. It, it rings hollow. If I was a member of the public and I was seeking to assess Gladys Berejiklian's credibility, I would be wondering whether I would continue to be supporting her and looking upon her so favorably as I might have done during the pandemic when she really did do a spectacular job. Mm-hmm. I think her appearance at the ICAC will shred her legacy. And to anyone listening to this program mm. who thinks that this is just a, a case of someone picking a bad boyfriend, that's not what this is. What this would appear to me to be is someone who is pathologically unable to conceive that they've made mistakes. And this is a case of whether this is a person should be leading New South Wales. It's a deeper question. That was Yoni Bashan, New South Wales political correspondent for The Australian. It will now take ICAC several months to give their report containing their findings. So, It's going to be interesting to see what they say. No one's suggesting it's going to be anything like a a criminal sanction. Nothing Mm. like the case of the Labor MPs, Eddie O'Beat or or Ian McDonnell. But I guess ultimately this will be a a very authoritative judgment on her credibility and accountability as a public officer. Yeah, it might even include a shake-up on things like pork barrelling, which has Mm. come out in um, in this investigation and in other hearings, like into the bushfires as well. It's just become a standard practice now. But should it be, especially when it can lead to at least perceived corruption in those areas where it's done? Tomorrow on The Briefing, an Australian musician who's gone completely around the Australian music industry to create a massive global career. That's Aviva on The Briefing tomorrow. Listener.